Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and thank you for joining us on the podcast we like to call Space Nuts, two in a pack. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining us as always is astronomer Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. So <laughs> I thought there were more nuts in this pack than just two. Well, a few bolts as well. <laughs> we've got several packets going out over the internet. Boom, boom. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, anyone can jump in on this. This is fine. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've got a lot to talk about today and some interesting stuff. And um, a few people have probably picked up on this story about the Parker Solar Probe heading off to take a look at the sun and try and figure out a few things like why it's hotter on the outside than the inside and things like that. Yep. Uh, the Perseid meteor shower is happening at the moment, and that gives us a chance to talk about dirt. And, <laughs> and a question from Andre in Amsterdam. Hello, Andre. I've, I've just been to Amsterdam. Why didn't you show me who you were? You could have waved. I would have said hello. Uh, anyway, Andre has uh, sent us a question about whether or not a black hole is really a hole. And that's a great question, really, when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it. So we'll, uh, we'll tackle that one. But we're off to the sun, Fred. This is a, a thing that... Um, fascinates and amazes people constantly, especially when there's a, an eclipse that gives you a better view of the corona and things like that. Uh, I, I remember watching a BBC documentary that um, someone gave me on DVD in the days of DVD uh, not so long ago, um, and it was called The Planets. And there was one episode that sort of my eyes sort of opened and my brain went, what? When they announced how somebody discovered that our sun was a star. And I'd never thought of it in those terms. I mean, I knew it was, but there was a time where people didn't equate the sun to being the same as all those other things out there. And then it, it, it sort of became a huge revelation. And we've been so fascinated with it, um, well, all through time, really, haven't we? Indeed, we have. And you're absolutely right. It was, I think it was relatively late. I think it was in the... Um, early 19th century that people finally figured out that you, those those little things you see in the sky are just like the sun but we see them a lot further away yeah um, so uh, yeah uh, uh, but um, the sun the most well-studied star of all but still has mysteries uh, and you've alluded to one already why is the outer atmosphere the corona so much hotter than uh, than this than the surfaces um, you know, it should be the other way around. The surface of the sun is roughly five and a half thousand. I'm going with the heat rises theory. 
<laughs> oh well, that's well. Uh, I'll just tell them to cancel the probe. You fixed. You've I've saved the billions. <laughs> Bit late now. Um, yeah. Whereas the uh, you know the, the the solar surface is about five and a half thousand degrees, uh, whereas the outer atmosphere has temperatures measured in millions, mm. um, probably tens of millions, in fact. Uh, although it's much more rarefied, it's um, in a way what you're talking about when you when you talk about a rarefied atmosphere like that is a few particles, but they're moving very very quickly because it's the the movement of particles that that tells us how you know what the temperature of a medium is. Anyway, that is a mystery. And so uh, on Sunday, um, the, just gone, the Parker Solar Probe was launched. It was launched on a Delta IV heavy rocket, which might sound like overkill for something that's only about the size of a, a small car. Um, why do you need a Delta IV Heavy, uh, which is one of the you know most powerful launch vehicles in the uh, armory of the United Launch Alliance, uh, which is the company that launched it? Why do you need such a big rocket? And the answer is uh, uh, perhaps a little bit unexpected. Re remember, the sun is only... Um, you know, it, only I'm putting in, in inverted commas here, but it's 150 million kilometres away. Mm. This is basically the same rocket that sends things out to, to the far distant reaches of the solar system. Uh, and so why do you need something that powerful to get to such a short distance? Because and they had yeah, a spare one. <laughs> they probably did have a spare one. Yeah, that <laughs> uh, the answer is that it's quite difficult to get to the sun. Uh, and even though it's relatively nearby in cosmic terms, uh, it is, uh, you know, it's it's not exactly unreachable, but it's it's quite um, a major challenge in terms of the amount of energy that you've got to expend to get there. Ah. And the reason for that, even though you're falling into the, the gravitational well of the solar system, you're falling inwards, um, what you've got to do is lose the energy of the Earth's rotation because the Earth's carrying around you around the sun at 30 kilometers per second. Mm. And you've got to get rid of that in order to fall in towards the, towards the sun. And so that's why you need such a big rocket. And in fact, there's more than that. There's, um, there's, there will be a gravitational slingshot uh, with Venus later in the, in the, uh, the, the spacecraft's trajectory. Uh, I can't remember whether I can tell you when that will be. Yes, the uh, Venus flyby, um, uh, in fact, there are, there are actually Two, but the first one is uh, the end of September, the end of next month. Uh, it will fly by Venus. And uh, normally when you think of these you know, gravitational slingshots, it's adding velocity to a spacecraft. But in this case, it's subtracting velocity because you, you use, what you do is you give a little bit of your momentum in the spacecraft to the planet Venus, and that slows you down. Uh, and, and once again, that's the object of the exercise, to bring the spacecraft into an orbit that will uh, still be elongated. It's, it will uh, be a, a, an orbit that will actually stretch out um, beyond the orbit of Venus, but it will take the spacecraft to within literally a few million kilometres of the of the solar surface. I think it comes down, when you do the sums, I think it is something like 4% um, mm. of the uh, of the distance between ourselves and the sun and what uh, what's what's the condition of that part of space like is it's it very oh, hot it's very i was hot. going to say how is it going to survive <laughs> so it's got a, a heat shield a, a carbon uh, based heat shield that sticks out basically in front of the spacecraft 
and and uh, you know prevents the radiation from the sun itself from melting all the metal components mm. which it uh, and in fact behind the heat shield the temperatures i think it's um you know it's it's almost like room temperature. It's a hot room temperature rather than being something measured in millions of yeah, degrees. It's, it's just so hard to get your head around, but we, we see that on Mercury. On one side, it's, exactly, you yeah. know, it's, yeah, we do. it's yeah. extraordinarily hot and uh, would fry an egg in you know a thousandth of a millionth of a second. And on the other side, you freeze. Yeah, that that that's right. Um, uh, it, it's so so it's it's the same sort of you know the same sort of um, of te- technology uh, or, or, or the same sort of physics that keeps mercury cool on the dark side is being used with the uh, with the heat shield that has a hot side and a and a and a, a cool side. Mm. Um, so it, it's you might wonder why it's called the Parker Solar Probe. It is named after. Uh, I, I, let me tell, let me guess. It's named after Parker from the Thunderbirds. Okay, well, that's pretty good because that's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was funded by the pen company. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to do that. I used to get my Parker pen and I'd put it upright and I'd push it down and I'd let go and it would launch about an inch. There you go. That's, so that's, that was fe- that's a feasible argument. And it probably had a heat shield as well. Um, yeah, yeah. When I was 14, my Parker pen was my prized possession. Oh, I'm not sure too. why, but yeah. yeah. You give a kid one these days and they go, oh, that's lame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, it's not named after either Parker from the Thunderbirds or after Parker pens. It's named after Dr. Eugene Parker, who um, was the guy back in the 1960s who proposed the existence of the solar wind, this wind of particles that blows from the sun uh, and um, essentially is what, you know, controls some of the conditions here on Earth. He was building on work by other scientists. Actually, one of my great scientific heroes is a Norwegian called Christian Birkeland, and he, uh, at the turn of the 20th century, was doing experiments to show that electrons, um, as we call them now, he called them cathode rays, come from the sun and cause the aurora, the northern and southern lights. Of course, being Norwegian, he was very familiar with them. Uh, But Eugene Parker uh, basically uh, tidied all that up, uh, gave us the idea of the solar wind and was present at the launch uh, last week. He is now 91 years old. Oh, wow. He looks terrific as well. Yeah, I saw him. It's fantastic. Yeah. I, I also thought it could have been named after the uh, Australian um, colloquialism, Parker just there. <laughs> close enough. Well, it is going to be close, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not, and in fact, in some ways, it is being parked there because it's in an orbit that is quite stable uh, or it will wind up in an orbit that's stable. Um, I think it makes 20, 24 orbits of the sun in what, I, if I remember rightly, is a seven-year mission uh, to, to understand the solar corona. Uh, but as I said, it, it, it's a very elongated orbit, so it's only in the hot bit for a short time. Um, what will happen to the spacecraft in the end is that uh, it, that orbit is stable, so it's not going to kind of wander off anywhere. But as it runs out of fuel, it will not have the like the you know the the vernier rockets the, the the little rocket motors that keep it pointed in the right direction they will run out of fuel so you can't keep the heat shield pointed towards the sun and basically it will just get hot and it will warm up and it probably just break up you, where, uh, where all is all the science in this why didn't they just send it up with some solar panels i mean really <laughs> come on 
Use some, well, yeah. Use some yeah. lateral thought, people. That, that, that's right. So, you, so, but you would still have run out of fuel because even with solar panels. So, you, what you're thinking of is um, is plasma propulsion, uh, where yeah, you yeah, yeah yeah that's what I was you, <laughs> absolutely. Get a gas. You've got a gas, and you uh, you accelerate it electrically to form a thrust, uh, which is the only reason you'd need solar panels. Uh, the problem is it still runs out of fuel because the propellant gas runs out. So your idea of solar panels, Andrew, whilst original and thought-provoking is crap, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not going to work. <laughs> okay. Um, That's why so, I'm on this side of the microphone. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's good thinking. Well, well thought out, but it doesn't carry through. Um, th there's just one little twist to this story that um, brings it kind of back to earth a little bit because on... Uh, Sunday, uh, I got a couple of reports from people uh, at different places in New South Wales. One was in t near Tamworth, uh, which is in northwestern New South Wales. I used to live there. 300 kilometres from you or something yep. like that. Mm -hmm. uh, another from Crescent Head, which is on the coast. And both of the same thing, which was uh, near the planet Venus, which is setting in the western sky at the moment, not long after sunset. They saw a peculiar three-lobed cloud, a bright cloud in the sky. Ah. The same thing. And I'm pretty sure that was uh, fuel dumping from the final stage of the launching rocket because it was just about an hour after the spacecraft had been launched that they saw that. Um, I'm, I, I'm ready to be stand, to stand corrected. I couldn't find um, a note of what the trajectory of the spacecraft was as it left the Earth, as to whether it actually did pass over Australia or whether the, the lower stages did. But uh, it seems, you know, it seems likely that that was a you know, fuel in, uh, coming from a because you dump the fuel before they re-enter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, very, very interesting stuff. In fact, one gentleman sent me some photographs of it. Uh, uh, thank you, Jim, for those. Mm. And, and so we're going to be learning over the next seven years uh, as much as possible. Is it just the corona they're focused on or are they going to be looking at other elements of the, the sun? I'm sure that the you know the the whole uh, I mean we we should uh, depending on how long they can peep outside the heat shield uh, we should see some really interesting images uh, of the of the solar photosphere the photosphere is the is the surface that we see it's not really a surface because the sun's a ball of gas but that's what we actually see when we look at the sun mm. it's the energetic bit that glows brilliant white yeah, they're going to need some pretty amazing technology on this thing to, to capture. Are they going to be taking photographs? Because at that distance, you know, they'd overexpose. <laughs> we'll wait and see. <laughs> All right. Oh, and one final point. Um, I think I read, and I, might, I think it was in respect to this, um, this probe, uh, that it's going to be the fastest object we've ever put up. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yes, so thanks for reminding me about that. It's um, So... Uh, as you probably know, if you've got something in a in an elongated orbit, um, and it was Kepler who told us all this back in the beginning of the 17th century. Uh, the uh, as as, a, as an object goes around in, in an orbit, uh, when it's closest to the sun, it's travelling at its fastest, and when it's away from the sun, it's travelling slower. That's the laws of 
you know, celestial mechanics, as we call it. Um, and so uh, you put this, uh, the, the Parker Solar Probe in an orbit that will carry it past the sun uh, at its nearest point. And at that point, it's traveling at about 190 kilometers per second. Wow. Which is, you know, 10 times faster almost than anything else that's ever been launched. Uh, but but it's really just the gravitational pull of the sun that's doing that. Uh, it, it will slow down as it gets further out. That's but really, yeah, extraordinary stuff. Mm, yeah. Indeed. All right. Well, more to come uh, from the Parker Solar Probe, I'm sure. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space nuts. Now, Fred, we move from the sun to dirt. Uh, at the moment, uh, our planet is passing through the Perseid meteor shower. Do we pass through that or does it pass us? I think it's we pass uh, through it. <laughs> It's, we, we, it's, we pass like ships in the night. Yes, yes. Uh, but it, <laughs> it's sort of, moving. yeah, it gives us a good opportunity to talk about these things and, and the dirt that surrounds us. And that's really what it is. We're surrounded by dirt and dust and all that sort of stuff. But it also makes some um, amazing um, sights for people to, to look at when, when these things hit our atmosphere because uh, there are a few um, famous uh, showers every year. Leonids is another one, I think, isn't it? Yep, yep. The Geminids and the Orionids, they're mm. all... So that kind of gives you a hint as to how these things are named. They're named after constellations. And the, the reason for that is that a meteor shower is defined as being a whole clutch of meteors that seem to come from the same region of the sky. 
uh, and so you can identify it with a with a constellation. And that region of the sky is called the radiant because it's where the meteors seem to radiate from. Uh, in the case of the Perseids, it's the constellation of Perseus, which is a northern hemisphere constellation, Andrew, and that's kind of why the Perseids are not that good seen from here in the south, although we can still see them, but you, you get better views in the northern hemisphere. Mm. Um, so uh, why, do you, why do they seem to come from a single point? Well, actually what's happening is that you've got all these little particles of dust, exactly as you've said, which are entering the atmosphere and they're all following parallel tracks. They're coming in parallel, um, but um, perspective uh, from our vantage point on Earth, makes parallel things look as though they radiate from a single point. It's the old, you know, railway lines disappearing into the distance trick. Uh, you know they're parallel, but they seem to converge on a on a distant point on the horizon. Yes. Uh, so it's the same with with meteors. They they seem to spray out from a single point. Um, so uh, what are we actually seeing here, uh, and why do these showers? come at different times throughout the year and, and by the way it's pretty easy these days to find out about the various meteor showers that you might see throughout the year and it's worth a look because there are some pretty good ones um i'm only mentioning the perseids because they're one of the most reliable showers if i can put it that way in that you get usually about one perseid meteor a minute when the shower is at its height it's probably past its height already this year and the, the um, pundits reckon that it was the 13th of August that we received the peak but the shower tends to dwindle away slowly it doesn't just stop um, uh, so it's um, it, it basically will probably be worth looking out until maybe the 20th of August 24th of August or something like that so um, that sort of gives you a clue as to what's going on here um, what's happening is as you said at the beginning the earth is passing through a cloud of dust particles um, as it moves in its orbit but uh, it's the, the question, I suppose, is where does the dust come from? And in fact, we know where it comes from. It comes from a comet, uh, which is called Swift-Tuttle. All meteor showers are identified with comets. And comets are objects that are in, once again, like uh, the Parker Solar Probe, in very elongated orbits. They, um, they either come in and disappear and, and they're never seen again, or they come in on orbits that may, might last for a couple of hundred years or something like that, but they're very, very elongated. And so um, the orbits of comets are very dusty places because comets, whilst they're made mostly of ice, they've got a lot of dust in them. Mm. And as they get near the sun, the ice vaporizes and releases the dust. So comet orbits are kind of pretty mucky. They're, 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 you know, they're laden with dirt. And that means that as the Earth plows through them, uh, we get these displays of meteors. So comet Swift-Tuttle uh, has an orbit that's 133 years long. Uh, it was discovered, if I remember rightly, in the 1860s, uh, by uh, Mr. Swift and Mr. Tuttle, uh, and hence, hence its name. Uh, I think its first recorded appearance was actually in the year 36 AD. Uh, so it's one that we've, you know, when you trace back, you can see that it's appeared several times. There'd be probably Chinese records or something like that. Yeah. But, but modern history um, it dates it back to the 1860s. 133-year uh, orbit, uh, very dusty orbit. And it's also, the dust is spread over quite a, 
a wide area. So, you know, if you imagine this dust trail, it's not a narrow dust trail. It's a pretty wide one that it's leaving behind. And that's why the the meteors, um, you know, why we see these meteors over a fairly long period, typically from um, middle of July to the to, to, to late in August. So, um, so the this particular comet is an eastern block vehicle as against the cleaner western uh, type of vehicle that we know and love. I'm not sure where you're going with that one, but I'm I think just thinking of the old Trabants. And yeah, I saw that. one while we were in uh, Berlin, and that's okay, what popped yeah. into my head, the filthy we old things. We're driving them when we go to Berlin. Do you? <laughs> I couldn't. Yeah, we do, yeah. You can get um, I think you'd end up far. having to push it along like Fred Flintstone. Yeah, honestly, it's, there are times when it's like that. That is slightly <laughs> off the topic there, Andrew. Yeah, funny that. <laughs> but, um, I've never done that before. <laughs> no, never wandered off. Um, so, uh, look, the, the Perseids, uh, it's, as I said, it's kind of past its peak now. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it is worth still worth having a look. Um, uh, uh, you know, Comet Swift-Tuttle, I think, comes back in 2115 or something like that. Well, we'll um, talk about it again then. Well, we'll talk about it nearer the time, that's right. Mm. Um, <laughs> it does prompt a question in my mind, strangely enough. Uh, d- d- is it possible there are comets in longer orbits that we just have not seen yet that could be coming our way one day? Uh, oh, yeah. And, and in fact, um, so I, the comets come in two varieties, short period and long period. And long period comets are ones with, you know, that basically we've only ever seen once. They come in, swing around the sun, and then head off again into the wide blue yonder. Where do they come from? They come from uh, a kind of cloud of these cometary objects, which is, we call it the Oort cloud. It's a, like a spherical shell of stuff be, uh, surrounding the sun, but it's a long, long way away. It's way beyond the planet Neptune and all the trans-Neptunian objects, the Kuiper Belt objects, way, way out beyond all of those. Um, and so... That's, we think, the kind of source of comets. What tends to happen, though, is uh, sometimes these things come into the inner solar system and their orbit is modified because they pass close to the planet Jupiter, and that swings them into a shorter period. So things like Halley's Comet and, indeed, Comet Swift-Tuttle have almost certainly interacted with Jupiter at some time in their history. So, yes, there are comets uh, that we don't know about. Uh, There are things on their way into the inner solar system as we speak that we haven't discovered yet. Um, But, you know, we keep an eye out for them. Well, we have to, don't we? Yeah, we do. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, So uh, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere uh, specifically, um, keep an eye out over the next uh, week or two for the Perseid meteor shower. It might be worth having a look at. Um, and, And many other showers still to come. Uh, This is Space Nuts, uh, Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, as has become our great joy, a question from our vast audience of four. And this one comes from Andre in Amsterdam. Uh, And before I ask the question, uh, Andre, may I compliment you on your wonderful city? I just adored it. Uh, Judy and I loved it. Judy's actually half Dutch. Her mum was from the Netherlands. And so that's why we wanted to see it. Judy wanted to see her her homeland, more or less. And, uh, yeah, and we think we found the town where her mother lived, uh, but we, we weren't sure because we don't have any records. But, um, oh, damn it, there goes my phone. And that was my wife. 
<laughs> just as you were talking about you. Uh, <laughs> yes, must have been what some are you sort of saying about my ancestors psychic connection there. Uh, but yeah, wonderful city. Loved Amsterdam. Really enjoyed visiting it, Andre. Uh, so let's get to your question. I'm I'm pretty sure Andre's um, messaged us before. Uh, I understand the black part of a black hole uh, since there is no visible light being emitted. Uh, his question is, are black holes really holes? The hole I cannot grasp. In my mind, the black hole is actual matter, uh, same as a planet, moon or star. But the mass is so dense that the resulting gravity is strong enough to hold light in. Uh, one could call it an inside-out star. Light is not emitted but retained. Or is a black hole pure energy? All matter that is being absorbed by the black hole is converted into pure energy, meaning MC2 term in the formula e, MC, uh, e equals MC squared is annihilated. No matter, no light, just energy. Is it really a hole? What does that mean? A hole is what? What determines the size of a hole? And where has all the matter eaten by the black hole gone? Oh, he's got you there. <laughs> that's, just, that's a brilliant question. It is a great question. And um, he's hit the nail on the head, actually. Uh, uh, um, Andre's comment, in my mind, the black hole is actual matter, is quite correct. Uh, it is. Um, although, as he says later on, uh, because of the extreme form of this matter, it's, it's turned into energy, E equals mc squared, by that, that um, wonderful equation. Mm. So, okay, so um, uh, we call a black hole basically a singularity. Um, and a singularity is a, a, sing a single point in space with curious properties. And in this case, the property of the black hole is, and this is the formal definition of a black hole, okay? It is a point in space where the density is infinite. Okay. So, so density, we think of things in grams per cubic centimetre, you know, the density of water is one. Um, the heavy things like lead have got higher densities, lighter things have got lower densities, and we, we all understand that. But <clears throat> in a black hole, it is a single point with infinite density. The density has gone up to infinity. And that gives it really curious properties in the gravitational world. It means that it sits at the, at the bottom of a, what we call a gravitational well, um, where <laughs> the, the change in gravity uh, is, is very, very rapid. And that's actually why black holes have their peculiar properties. So the properties of the black hole um, uh, th th they were first investigated, I, I should check this, but I think um, uh, Schwarzschild, who was an early physicist, uh, a theoretical physicist, a mathematician, <clears throat> he looked at the properties of black holes within weeks of Einstein publishing his theory of general relativity. And it must have been within weeks because he was dead uh, by the middle of the following year. He, he was, this was, remember, this was during the First World War. Schwarzschild actually died of a fever, I think, uh, serving on the Eastern Front. Um, he wasn't killed by enemy action, but he'd be, he died because of illness. But he was a brilliant man, and he looked at the properties of something like a black hole and, you know, set up the equations that um, allowed people to kind of understand what they were. Um, but they were never really given any attention. They were regarded just as curiosities, probably a, a, a property of relativity, something that didn't really exist. Um, you know, so what's the point in talking about it? Um, and it was only uh, after the war... Uh, the Second World War, 
that people really started thinking about it seriously. Uh, and it was the person who actually coined the term. Uh, he was one of the great physicists of the 20th century, John Wheeler. He, in 1967, coined the term black hole to describe this um, infinitesimal point uh, that, um, you know, that, that basically um, has all these wonderful properties. Um, uh, something I didn't know, I'm just, which I've just read, um, before 1967, uh, in Russia, they called black holes frozen stars, which oh. is really quite a nice a nice term. Yeah. <laughs> um, but black hole has become the accepted term for these things. But uh, Andre is absolutely correct. There is no hole. It's uh, it, he called it a black hole because nothing can escape from it. That's why he gave it that terminology. But in in the physical, you know, the physical aspects of it. Uh, that there is no hole there. Um, he, he may have been thinking, 10 years before John Wheeler coined the term black hole, he, he'd coined the term wormhole. And a wormhole is a, actually a theoretical entity that comes out of relativity. It's like, like a tunnel that's a shortcut through space-time. The theory of gravity, theory of relativity permits such a thing to exist, but we've never discovered anything uh, that could be a wormhole. So um, he was pretty good with his holes. He liked yeah. the term hole. Um, so a black hole, uh, uh, really a, almost a glib term to describe something which has such intense gravity that even light cannot escape from it. And that's where the black comes from. Uh, but the hole is really, uh, as as Andre suggests in his um, in his text or in his email, the word hole is really a misnomer. Um, what determines the size of the hole? Well, we we think in terms now of the a black hole. Um, so the black hole itself is the point uh, with infinite density, but there is a region around that uh, uh, where you can sort of define a distance from that where light cannot escape. And that we give a name to as well. We call it the event horizon. You and I have talked about that because we've talked about the event horizon telescope, the EHT, which is trying to get images of this thing. So that would be, uh, you know, if you could come up close to one of these, and I don't advise it, it's a bit dangerous, but if you could, uh, what It'll you would see... your wallet, that's... That's what we're saying. <laughs> Not to mention your feet and your arms and your legs <laughs> and any other bits that you have as well. Yeah, so um, the, the, the event horizon is the dark part of the black hole. It's what you would see. You'd see just blackness. Um, although, in fact, we expect with the event horizon telescope to be able to see the swirling mass of material that's being sucked into the, into the black hole itself. So, um, uh, and the size of that event horizon is what determines or is determined by the mass of the black hole. So even though it's a single infinitesimal point, it can have different amounts of mass concentrated in it. And the amount of mass in it uh, determines the size of the black hole itself. Mm. And? Uh, by the event, uh, sorry, by the, sorry, the diameter of the event horizon. I beg your pardon, that's now, I don't know if you covered this part of his question. Where does all the matter eaten by a black hole go? Down the hole. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's not a I, hole, but it goes down the hole. Yeah, it's not a hole, but it goes down the hole. So it winds up in this infinitesimal point, the point of infinite density. That's where it all goes. It's very confusing, Fred. It, it is totally, totally counterintuitive. You, we just can't get our brains around it. Uh, but I think, you know, in, in many ways, a black hole helps you with that because it it, it implies it's black and there's a hole that things can go down. Mm. And that's, that's what happens. It's, so, a, it's a big nothing. 
It's a big nothing, yeah. It's a big nothing of something. Uh, <laughs> I don't know yes. how to define it. I'm not actually sure, Andrew, whether that is terribly helpful, but thank you for that anyway. I, I try. I'm, <laughs> I am trying. Full marks for trying. Yeah. 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 My wife that, says I I'm trying the, um, too. <laughs> I think the term is going to stick, actually. I think black hole's been I around. I think it's around forever, yeah. I once did a radio quiz question on um, on, on a black hole to see uh, if people could figure out you know, where the term came from. It took a long time to solve, but um, not as long as it's taking to solve what a, big, a black hole actually is. Yes, that's but, right. Uh, thank you, Andre, for the question. Hopefully we covered every element of it. Um, it we, we enjoyed the gravity of your... Um, uh, interpretation too and yep. we welcome your questions anytime uh, we're getting so many it's reaching a point where we're going to have to probably dedicate 10 or 15 episodes to questions only <laughs> which obviously isn't feasible but uh, we'll 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 have to cherry pick them i'm afraid but, we, we um, should do what um, andrew what we did with uh, episode 100 every time we get a significant number we should de devote it to questions mm. how's uh, that Maybe. yes that sounds great to me uh, we'll do that in episode 200 what are we yes. up to now? One one six. Anyway, thanks, Andre, and thank you for uh, uh, your continual support. And that applies to everybody. We appreciate it greatly. And don't forget to tell your friends. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those places. Fred, as always, thank you. It's been great fun. Great fun, Andrew, as always. And we'll see you soon. Indeed, we will. Uh, Fred Watson, astronomer, joins me every week here on the podcast we like to call Space Nuts. And we look forward to talking to you again next time. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. But you turn it on and off again, and it seems to be all right. Yeah. Okay. So well, that'll be good. And my levels are all right. Uh, you sound great. Yes. Yeah. I know so. that, but my levels are all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. The uh, bum tish. Yeah. <laughs>